Hi, this is Dr. Sin. I'm currently a PGY2 here at Rio Bravo. Um, today is May 31st, 2021. Um, there's a saying that I came across on social media that has always spoken to me, which I find relevant to our vocation. The more I learn, the more I find out I don't know. So comes the joys and um, challenges of our chosen career. Um, case in point, have you ever heard of vaginal metformin? Neither have I until today. Um, there was a randomized clinical trial in 2013 at Eswit University in Egypt studying the effectiveness of vaginal metformin for the treatment of polycystic ovarian syndrome. As primary care providers, we are very aware of the gastrointestinal side effects of metformin when taken PO. This sometimes prevents compliance with metformin. Um, the study at the university was to study the effectiveness of metformin when given vaginally and um, the effectiveness of treating PCOS, while also decreasing the undi undesirable side effects of metformin when given PO, in hopes of also ultimately improving adherence. Unfortunately, the study was planned to be finished in 2014, but no results have been published thus far. So stay tuned in case there are any updates. So vaginal metformin, I really had to do a search for that, Sin, Dr. Sin, because it was I was very curious about it. And, and there is at least one occurrence in the whole internet search that I did when a vaginal metformin was mentioned, at least in English, in the English internet. And it was an online forum where a doctor recommended vaginal metformin for PCOS to a patient. But this was online. Of course, this is not FDA approved and um, I wouldn't recommend it yet. And uh, it's not approved by any other organization, so I would not recommend vaginal metformin but you know that would be a great idea for a business right like for example a metformin patch <laughs> the methyl patch why not so uh, actually I remember Lisa Manzanares she was one of our PGY3s yeah. she was saying maybe we should put metformin in drinking water maybe in this uh, in this day and age maybe that would help out a lot, a lot so we people. can put some metformin and some atorvastat <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Enjoy your episode. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. Well, today we celebrate Memorial Day, but what is Memorial Day? That's a great question. That's the day that us veterans get to get free wings at Hooters. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, uh, Memorial okay. Day is a American holiday at the end of May to honor the men and women who died uh, while serving in the U.S. military. It has great historical meaning to Americans. It originated from the Civil War, which claimed more lives than any other conflict in U.S. history. The Civil War ended in 1865. A fun fact to know is that Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day. It was three years after the Civil War ended on May 5, 1868. That Decoration Day was declared as a time 
for the nation to decorate the graves for those who were lost in war. Uh, graves were adorned with flowers and their lives celebrated. Major General John A. Logan then declared that Decoration Day should be observed on May 30th. It is believed that this date was chosen because flowers will be in full bloom across the country. The birthplace of Memorial Day was recognized as coming from Waterloo, New York, because Waterloo was the first place to use this term to expand honor and recognition for all U.S. fallen soldiers, and both from the Civil War and from other wars. In 1971, Memorial Day was officially declared a national federal holiday. The National Moment of Remembrance encourages all Americans to pause wherever they are at 3 p.m. local time on Memorial Day in a minute of silence to remember and honor those who have died in service to the nation. If you value your, your freedom, wherever you are, this Memorial Day at 3 p.m., pause for a minute to recognize all of our military men and women, both past and present, who served and continue to serve our country. We honor every soldier who lost his or her life in any war against America. You are the reason for our freedoms. You gave the ultimate sacrifice. We do not take this for granted. To all our military members who have died at war, we appreciate the privileges we have today because of you. We honor the costly price at which it came. We remember you. We honor you. We sincerely thank you. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. Hello, everyone. I hope you're enjoying a very nice Memorial Day. It's uh, the beginning of summer, officially. So make sure that you put some sunscreen on you and enjoy your summer, guys. So today we're going to talk about uh, A1C, and actually I have here Dr. Rodriguez. Just for your information, today is Wednesday, we're recording on Wednesday, and we're taking this uh, free hour, free couple of hours to to do this, because we know that it's important to, to stay up to date in, in many topics. So today we're going to talk about A1C. Thank you, Yodaisi Rodriguez, for being here and for uh, being willing to discuss this topic. Thank you for having me, Dr. Arriaza. So today, uh, glycated hemoglobin or glycohemoglobin or hemoglobin A1C or just A1C. That's how we call it in clinic or in everywhere. And the patients, I think they are familiar with that term. Remember your A1C. It's actually on TV all the time. Mm -hmm. If there is a number that you're going to remember, remember the A1C. So if you're diabetic. A1C is, is a form of hemoglobin that is chemically linked to a sugar. And glucose normally binds to hemoglobin when, when it's exposed to, to that uh, molecule, when it's in the blood, in, especially in humans. And, yeah, and also refers a percentage of glycosylation of the hemoglobin A1C chain and also correlates with the average blood glucose that we have, I mean, the patient has levels over the previous two, three months. The, from the slow turnover of these red blood cells in the body. Uh, don't forget that the red blood cells live around 120 days. That's why two, three months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, three months. That's from medical school, right? Red blood cells, they live only 120 days. So um, the history of the A1C, the, these people, these phenomenal scientists are called Huseman and Mayerin 
they separated glycohemoglobin for the first time in 1858. Oh, 1958 actually, one century later, <laughs> 1958. <laughs> so uh, the A1C for monitoring the degree of diabetes or the degree of control of glucose in diabetic patients was proposed in 1976. So it was a long time later. Let's see, about 30, no, 20 years later after it was discovered. And it was proposed by Anthony Cerami, Ronald Cohen, and co-workers. They proposed that to monitor uh, the control of diabetes. Yeah, but sadly I was reading that it would take longer for the ADA guidelines to use it as a diagnosis text. It was until 2010. Prior to that, just a random glucose or fasting plasma glucose were used for diagnosis. So for diagnosis of diabetes, A1C test should be done by a technique that is certified by the National Glycohemoglobin Standardization Program. So there is a specific organism that, that is in charge of A1C, and it should be consistent with the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial Reference Essay. So if it's not done by that technique, then it doesn't work or it's not valid. So I always, uh, when I have received the results, I try to show the patient graphically what the numbers mean so they will have better control. Uh, and we, they have uh, separate numbers, for example, less than 5.7 percentage, that is considered normal. 5.7 to 6.4, that is considered pre-diabetes, and above 6.5 is considered diabetes. So yeah, I like seeing this, um, you know, glucose metabolism problem as an spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. We start with pre-diabetes, what we call pre-diabetes, when the A1C is between 5.7 and 6.4, and, and we, can we can tell the patient, already your glucose is not being metabolized normally. There is already a problem, but we, we think that it's not that severe, but eventually that problem can become diabetes. So it's like a spectrum of, of, of the metabolism of sugar. It's a problem, there is a spectrum that starts with pre-diabetes. Oh, um, but then it's good to mention other criteria for the diagnosis of diabetes. The fasting plasma glucose it has to be above 126 to be considered diabetes. Or if you do a two-hour plasma glucose tolerance or oral glucose to tolerance test, it has to be above 200. And if you just check a random glucose in any patient, it's above, above 200, then you can tell the patient most likely you have diabetes, especially if they have the classical symptoms. Mm. Now, usually what I have found that patients with pre-diabetes, uh, they tend to, I mean, patients with diabetes more than pre-diabetes, the diabetic tends to think that diabetes is cured as soon as they hit a good number. So mm -hmm. that's something that I always discuss with them. As soon as you're diabetic, it's a chronic condition and it's controlled, uh, but it's, as soon as you're diabetic, it's not going back. Mm -hmm. But the pre-diabetes, though, they can correct it and they should be tested yearly. Yeah, so when you have an abnormal A1C that is in the pre-diabetes range, test it again in one year. But uh, the American Diabetes Association has recommended A1C test twice a year for patients with stable glycemia in the case they have diabetes, so twice a year every six months. But for patients with poor glucose control, it has to be done at least um, every three months. And sadly, those are our patients. Yeah, exactly, every three months. You can use the ADA guidelines to assess the targets for the A1C, the A1C level. Mm -hmm. 
And I was reading that the point of care that we have in the clinica is not recommended for screening or diagnosis. So we can use it for, for monitoring and it's very good. But if you are looking for diagnosis or the screening, better the blood test than yeah. the point of care. Yeah, and, and I got used to the point of care A1C. I think it's very useful, guys, for monitoring. It's phenomenal. So use it frequently. And there are some limitations, however, to the A1C test. And, and, and there is an incomplete correlation between A1C level and average glucose level in certain individuals. So let's talk about those individuals who may have uh, falsely elevated or falsely lower A1C level. Yeah, there is non-glycemic factors that may interfere with the A1C measurements. For example, falsely lower A1C, we can see in acute blood loss, in chronic liver disease, hemolytic anemias, patients who are receiving antiretroviral treatment for HIV, uh, pregnancy, vitamin E and C, uh, patients being treated for iron, vitamin B12 or folate deficiency, or receiving erythropoietin, or chronic hemolysis like thalassemia. So those people, they have falsely lower, lower. Mm -hmm. So um, people with hemoglobinopathies and hemoglobin variants or malnutrition, they may have lower or elevated A1C, but people who are falsely elevated, who they have falsely elevated A1C are people with aplastic anemias, hyperbilirubinemia, hypertriglyceridemia, iron deficiency anemias, renal failure and splenectomy. Yeah, the, the, I think that the key here is the red blood cells uh, life expectancy. When the red blood cells have a short life, like in acute bleeding, the A1C is falsely low. On the other hand, when the red blood cells, they live longer, they, uh, for example, with, when a patient has a history of splenectomy or with patients with aplastic anemias, the A1C is falsely elevated because they have more time to be linked to the glucose. And also, uh, we need to remember that hemoglobinopathies or hemoglobin variants can change the A1C levels and also may be more prevalent among certain racial and ethnic groups. For example, uh, A1C tends to be higher in the African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans. Okay, and it's good that you mentioned Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans because we were talking about that. Hispanic Americans is not the same as Hispanics because like you and me were Hispanic. Mm -hmm. um, we're Hispanic Americans, basically, right? Um, our kids. <laughs> <laughs> our kids are Hispanic Americans. Yeah, because they were born here. Exactly. Um, yeah. So other limitations of the A1C, you know, it gives you an average of, the, of your glucose, but it doesn't mention anything about hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia episodes. So mm -hmm. a patient can be having very, very low sugar and very high sugar. I'm sorry, that's a system. Yeah, the PA system is always <laughs> present. Welcome to our <laughs> podcast. We always have this uh, PA system in the background just for your entertainment. So yeah. who, who should be screening for diabetes, Dr. Arreaza? So screening for diabetes, um, you know, should be... According to the ADA, women should be um, screened for gestational diabetes when they are pregnant. Uh, HIV patients uh, prior or in after retroviral uh, treatment 
prior to start and after you want to change the retro retroviral treatment. All adults with BMI above 25 with risk factors and, and without risk factors, anybody after age 45. Epic is really good about it. That's why on our care gaps, also is, always we have that reminder there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, testing for diabetes in, or pre-diabetes in adults uh, older, than 20, older than 18 years old, you know, uh, they, the criteria by, by the ADA is very important to consider uh, adults who are overweight or obese, sorry, or patients with obesity. Uh, I always emphasize the patient first language. So patients with obesity and not obese patients. Um, so um, when they have BMI above 25 or above 23 in their Asian Americans, uh, who have one or more of the following risk factors. So I want to mention the risk factors because sometimes we think uh, that you might be at risk for diabetes, but sometimes we have to be clear about this. So the risk factors are if you have a first degree relative with diabetes, that means brother, sister, father or mother. If you have, uh, um, you belong to a, an ethnic group or a race that is a high risk, for example, African-American, Latinos, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. If you have a history of cardiovascular disease, if you have hypertension, and hypertension is defined as a blood pressure above 140 over 90, uh, or if you are on, on taking medication for the, for hypertension. If you have an HDL cholesterol less than 35, or if you have a triglyceride level above 250, those women with PCOS, they should be screened too, or that's one of the risk factors for diabetes if you are, if you live a sedentary lifestyle, or if you have other clinical conditions associated with insulin resistance, for example, severe obesity or acanthosis nigricans. Wow. Yeah, patients with prediabetes, uh, they should be tested every year, like you mentioned. Uh, women who are diagnosed with um, gestational diabetes, they should have a lifelong test at least every three years, because we know that gestational diabetes is a risk for actual, for overt diabetes. For all other patients, testing should begin at age 45. Um, you know, in our clinic, I don't think we wait for anybody to be 45 years mm. old, because we are... They have risk factors. Yeah, we have the risk factors, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, if results are normal, your A1C is normal, or your fasting plasma glucose is normal, uh, you have to repeat the uh, the test again again in three years. And we are a little bit more aggressive than that too because of the population. Diabetes oh, yeah. is a real problem here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And because we have listeners all over the place, you know, we're in Central California. In Central California, we have a high um, a number of patients who are from uh, Latino descent, you know, who are from Mexico and from other countries in Latin America. Well, I was reading that the uh, task force um, differs a little bit from the ADA. They want to check everybody from 40 to 70 years old who are overweight or obese. And they recommend the screening for a normal glucose as part of cardiovascular risk assessment. And that's it. They just want everybody. It doesn't matter risk factor or not. Okay. 40 to 70 years mm -hmm. old who are overweight or obese or obese or have obesity yep. so um, actually that that statement is being reviewed re right now by the USPSTF and they want to change the age to start screening from 40 
to 35 instead of you know instead of 40 you start 35 like the colonoscopy sooner well the colonoscopy <laughs> actually was already published <laughs> yeah this to start at 45 instead of 50 so that's good we're living longer so yeah and, <laughs> and, and but people are getting sicker younger unfortunately yeah so what other recommendations do you read about in, uh, from the US any asymptomatic pregnant women after 20 weeks of gestation and this is a grade B recommendation. So that's by the USPSTF. Mm -hmm, yep. And they are not certain, they, they don't know for sure if it's um, appropriate to test pregnant women before 24 weeks of gestation. And this is different than um, other organizations, but we're talking about the USPSTF. And uh, Dr. Rodriguez, you were reminding me about what we do in our clinic, right? Yes. With prenatal care. Any pregnant, I mean, as soon as you know you're pregnant, you have to do the one hour glucose. And if it's abnormal, you will do the three hours. Yeah, and that's because we have a high risk population. Yes. So, and we repeat the, the the one hour and the third trimester. And the third trimester. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Correct. So I think we're, we're doing a very good job at diagnosing people with uh, gestational diabetes in our population. So let's talk about the goals or the targets of the A1C. Well, those goals can range in between 6.5, that is the bottom of the abnormal, to 8%. Targets will be individualized based on the life expectancy, the disease duration, the presence of complications, the CVD risk factors, and comorbid conditions, and actually the risk also for severe hypoglycemia. Yeah, if we have a patient who is newly diagnosed, is young, and he has no comorbidities, we expect a goal to be more uh, closer to 6.5 or usually below 7 would be a realistic goal for those patients. This patient has been with diabetes for many years, for 20, 20 plus years, and it's a patient who is 80 years old. You know, we expect a, a more uh, flexible goal, maybe below 8%. So sometimes uh, the goal can be not even related to A1C, and I learned this from our dear uh, endocrinologist, Dr. Linares. You know, sometimes all your goal is to make sure that your patient doesn't have any acute complications. For example, I have a 97-year-old, I was telling you, Dr. Rodriguez, about this patient. Um, he, his A1C is 8.5, and uh, our goal is to make sure that he doesn't have a DKA, and that he doesn't have an acute complication, that he doesn't have a super high hyperglycemia. Or, or hypoglycemia. So those are main goals in this patient. So as a curiosity, Dr. Rodriguez, A1C is not used in animals, in veterinary medicine. Oh, wow. That's interesting because they, they don't use glucose the same, the same way we use it. Wow. So that's it, guys. I hope you liked it. I hope you um, enjoyed this little, this brief episode about um, A1C. Any final message, Dr. Rodriguez, that you want to give? Um, enjoy the summer, enjoy the vacation, and I'm done with the residency, guys. So probably this is truly the last one. Bye-bye. <laughs> <Okay>. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>Now we conclude our episode number 54, A1C. Three characters that may not mean much for most people, but for patients with diabetes, it's a very important number to remember. Remember to check the A1C in all your patients with poor control of diabetes every three months or every six months in patients with good control. A1C has its limitations, but it certainly is the best way to assess your patient's glycemic control. 
We started this episode by giving you a random report about vaginal metformin. The study was unfinished, and we also reminded you of the importance of remembering our heroes during Memorial Day. Even without trying, every night you go to bed being a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicaservista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Hassani Sin, Valerie Savelli, Yodezi Rodriguez, and Steven Saito. Audio by Sarajam Ruthia. See you next week.